0: You're listening to a Roddenberry podcast.
1: This episode of Mission Log is brought to you by Raycon. Take 15% off their products at buyraycon.com slash mission That's it. You get 15% off your entire Raycon order. So feel free to grab a pair and a spare. That's 15% off at buyraycon.com slash mission
0: Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast, episode 388, Sons and Daughters.
2: Welcome into another episode of Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. I'm John Champion. And I'm
1: Norman Lau. Each week on Mission Log, we take a long, personal look at an episode of Star Trek, sizing it up, trying to figure out its place in our lives, and how
2: we can bring it back into the family. This week, Sons and Daughters The one where it's just a feel-good family reunion from beginning to end. Nothing else to see here. Pretty much, uh, Norman, I'm just going to call it the Waltons in space. I
1: would probably agree with you, with the exception of that I don't. (laughs) And you might want to rewatch this episode to maybe get a better idea of what this episode's about. But let me tell you something, John. While you do that, and I'll give you like the 30 seconds to do that, while I get everyone up to speed on how to contact us, Mission Log is a conversation about the stories of Star Trek, so that's why we want to hear from you. Use Mission Log Pod to give us a like and a share on Facebook and Twitter. If you're so inclined, give us a rating and a review at Apple Podcasts to help others find the show. You can call us on Skype at Mission Log Pod or by dialing 323-522-5641. Send us an email at missionlog at roddenberry.com. And remember, we may use your comments on an upcoming episode of Mission Log. Tick, 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 and done.
2: Oh, I'm back. I'm back. There you go. Yeah. Um, Definitely not the Waltons in space. I think you were right. Yeah.
1: If it were the Waltons in space from this episode, would that make who John Boy?
2: Ooh. Is it Alexander?
1: I would Mm. probably say
2: yes, minus the mole. I think so. Yeah. (laughs) All right, trivia for this week's episode, Sons and Daughters. It was written by the team of Bradley Thompson and David Weddle. Here's this, you know, writing twosome again, who we first met in season four's Rules of Engagement. David, you might remember, was the one who shared a love of Sam Peckinpah movies with Iris Stephen Bear, and that friendship led to his writing gig on DS9, all accompanied by Bradley. It was directed by Jesus Salvador Trevino, and uh, you might remember him, that has uh, got his start on Trek uh, directing Voyager, but he had soon jumped over to DS9 as well. We last talked about The Begotten, which was his start on this show, and he'll be around for just one more DS9 later this season. Then we will catch up with him again for uh, more episodes of his on Voyager. We mentioned last week that that episode, Rocks and Shoals, was shot after this one. Uh, Since we have elements of our long story arc in both the A and B plots, that was a trick for uh, Ron Moore and for others on the production staff to actually keep straight. But it all worked out in the end. That is what a good continuity team will get you. And let's talk about our guest stars. We have returning guest stars. Speaking of continuity... Uh, Mark Alimo's Ducat, Casey Biggs as Damar, J.G. Hertzler, naturally as Martok, and Melanie Smith is back for her fourth time as Tora Zial. New to the show and making her only Star Trek appearance, we have Gabrielle Union as Klingon Ngaran. This show is still relatively earlier in Gabrielle's career, but she, wow, well, she did very well for herself after Trek, really taking off from the 2000 film Bring It On. After that, the TV and feature film roles definitely kept pouring in. Bad Boys 2, City of Angels, Night Stalker, the 2005 version, you know, not Kolchak, but but just so, so many more. She is, uh, I would say, very close to being a household name, during that period, right after 2000, John, if I'm if interject as a fan of Gabrielle unions, I could not believe
1: when I read her name in the credits. I, I know. Then, right. Yeah. And then I was looking. I'm like, is that her behind all that Klingon makeup? <sighs> and she probably thought the same thing. I'm like, yeah, I my first appearance on TV and I'm behind all this. makeup. Yeah and
2: that was her sure enough wow now also on our klingon crew we meet Ch'atarg, played by sam zeller one of those actors like a lot of people who come through ds9 that has a huge background primarily in live theater You may have caught him on TV in guest roles on Gotham or Chuck or Phil of the Future. He even crossed his two professional worlds when he appeared in the 2000 TV production of Broadway's Peter Pan. And finally, meet Alexander. Again. For the first time. He's slightly more grown up than when we or Worf last saw him. This time, Alexander is played by Mark Warden, the fourth actor to portray him in a performing role, if you count James Sloyan as future Alexander who visited Wharf in TNG's First Born. Mark is Canadian and got his start professionally as a child in TV roles. Genre roles like this one and Space Above and Beyond cropped up relatively early for him, but it's in voice acting for both animation and video games where Mark has really done the lion's share of his work constantly knocking out performances in Batman, Avengers, Star Wars, and Lego Adventures. We'll see him back one more time on DS9, then in a different role on Enterprise.
0: According to my databanks, the only thing the Klingons and the Waltons have in common is that Jerry Goldsmith wrote theme music for both of them.
2: Prologue. Opening on, oh, hey, it's uh, Worf and Dax taking some personal time somewhere on the IKS Retarin, as they and the rescued Defiant crew race back to Starbase. There's a little good-natured bickering about wedding details, but that's par for the course. After arriving, Sisko says his goodbye and General Martok prepares for their next mission, which will include some replacement Klingon soldiers to fill their ranks. These are young, untried Klingons, eager to prove their worth, and among them is someone Worf knows, Alexander Rojenko. Act 1. Checking in at DS9, Kira and Odo are still trying to figure out what their new resistance will look like. Jake wants a part of it too, but they're remaining tight-lipped in front of the young reporter. Kira has to head off to meet Gul Dukat anyway, who is due to arrive soon. He does, she's there, and her angst turns to happiness when Dukat presents Tora Zial, who has come back to the station with him. He insists that they all have dinner together later. The Rattaran has embarked on its new mission, escorting a convoy through dangerous space, fending off any Dominion attack. Martok charges Worf with getting the new crew members in order, like that new guy, Alexander. The general wants to know why Worf never mentioned him before, and all Worf can muster is that they are not close. And when Alexander showed no interest in becoming a warrior, he was sent to Earth to live with his foster parents and find his own path. Worf promises to find out why he joined the Klingon Defense Force and train him to be a warrior. Later, Alexander stops by Worf's quarters, and it's definitely not the happy reunion either of them may have thought possible. Alexander isn't forthcoming about anything, least of which is his decision to join the force. Worf can only snap that he expects twice out of him than he does the others. Dismissed. Act 2. Before dinner with Dukat, Kira stops by to tell Zial that she's not coming. But she wants to know why in the world Zial would come back to the station from studying on Bejor. She felt out of place. Cardassian in a place where she wasn't accepted. She needed to come back to the only place that felt like home, and she had betrayed her father. Whoa! Whoa! Wait a minute, Kira reminds her. Dukat betrayed you. But he's family, and they talked it out. Okay, so Kira will come to dinner if only to support Zial. With the return catching up to the convoy, time for us to join the crew in the mess hall. Oh sure, Alexander is getting a warm welcome. He even has a seat reserved for him by an older officer named Shatarg. He's being a bully, taunting Alexander about his tastes, his background, his father. You can see where this is going. It gets physical, knives are drawn, and it's definitely a one-sided fight. Alexander is smaller and less skilled, and you better believe Worf comes in to break it up. He sends everyone to their stations, and the two fighters to the medical ward. On his way out, though, Shatarg asks Worf if he'll fight the Jem'Hadar for his son as well. Act three: dinner with the Dukats must have been all right. Here's the Gull, his daughter, and Kira hanging out afterward, admiring Torrezial's artistic talent. She submitted her work to the Cardassian Institute, and she got a very positive response from its head. Zial wants to show that art surpasses the divisions of the Cardassians and Bajorans. And even here in this moment, Dukat and Kira are finding common ground in their admiration. Back to the Rataran, where Martok is having a drink with Worf. Yeah, he heard about the fight in the mess hall, and he is questioning Worf's ability now to do his job and be a father. Like, number one, don't fight your kids' battles for him. The conversation interrupted by a call from the bridge. There's a Jem'Hadar attack ship bearing on them battle stations. Nobody can see the attack ship. Sensors show that the Jem'Hadar have fired weapons, but they can't see the torpedoes either. Nothing to do but brace for impact and hope they survive. Three, two, one, nothing. Alexander made a mistake. It was a battle simulation that he forgot to reset at his station on the bridge. He's humiliated. The other Klingons are amused at his expense. When Worf tries to step in, Martok holds him back, though. It was a mistake Alexander will never make again. They'll be on their toes from now on, and the others might be accepting him after all. Only as the ship's fool, Worf replies. Act 4. Dukat just seems to be getting better and better. He's in the conference room on DS9, promising the Bajorans replicators and a show of good faith, given the newfound peace with the Dominion. When that meeting adjourns, Ducat informs Kira that the Cardassian Institute of Art will be exhibiting three of Torresial's drawings. In celebration, he'll throw a little reception tonight in his quarters and wants Kira to attend. Later, he sends Kira a beautiful purple dress that she opens and holds up to herself in the mirror in her quarters and immediately becomes disgusted. She goes right to Dukat, returning the dress, saying she wants nothing to do with him, ever. Moments later, Zial steps out from her room and her father presents her with this beautiful dress that he just got for her to wear to her party tonight. Catching up on the Ritaran, here's Worf now trying to teach his son how to use a batleth, and it's not going very well. At all. Alexander is just not cut out for this, and Worf is calling him out. Why is he here? Why is he trying to be a warrior? But Alexander just says if the Jem'Hadar kill him, then he'll be dead. And that's that. Worf giving up leaves. But Alexander stays in the training room, trying to use his bat leth. Still with no skill, the next one to enter is Martok, who sizes up the boy this time and wants answers. Why is he here? No, really, why is he here? With no satisfactory answers coming, Martok tells Alexander that he is to be transferred off this ship and onto a transport ship. With this news, and knowing the request came from Worf, Alexander storms into his father's quarters. This time, the conversation is a little more real. Worf abandoned him for years, and now that he's here, Worf is trying to get rid of him again. This tender moment interrupted by a call to battle stations. Act 5. Okay, this time, it's not a training exercise. There really are Jem'Hadar ships attacking, and the Ritaran is taking a beating. Alexander is still green, but he's trying at least to keep up from his station while Martok barks out orders. They make some headway against the multiple attack ships, but in the midst of the battle, there's a plasma leak. Alexander volunteers to fix it, a dangerous task, and Shatar goes with him. While the Rotaran fights off the Jem'Hadar, oh, look at that, they just slow down and let the other guy get in front and then fire. Okay? But what about Alexander? He and Chittarg were successful. They secured the impulse injector, but somehow Alexander managed to lock himself in a corridor by accident because he's not very good at starships. Once he is freed by Chittarg and the others, Worf takes him away. Checking in one last time on DS9, Zial catches up with Major Kira in a hallway and remarks that she was missed at the reception last night. A defeated Kira says she knows why she couldn't be there, and Zial just wants to not have to choose between Kira and her father. Kira makes it easy, though. There is no choice. Dukat is Zial's father, and then Kira walks away. What now of Alexander? Worf promises that from now on he'll stand by his son, and in doing so, welcomes Alexander in a blood ritual into his new house, the House of Martok, with the Patriarch himself there to welcome him in. The
1: end. Nicely summed up, John. And I think that we have a lot to say about this episode because it has brought out many of the feels, but let's kind of like take this one step at a time. And uh, that's the only way to do it. So we're going to take a deep (laughs) breath and get into observations. But I really, you know, I I thought that this episode started off, uh, interestingly enough, I mean... I'm sure it did for Michael and Terry, who had to start off with a somewhat of a love scene.
2: Have we started out an episode of Star Trek with a makeout scene? Not that I can remember. Um, maybe we have. May, maybe like a maybe a Cisco Cassidy Yates moment. But but this one, th- this had a little passion in it. I gotta we say. We did have
1: one episode where I think yeah. the censors cut it short, but it was Cisco and Cassidy in bed mm. with triangular oh, pillows. Yeah. Because yeah. that sign, you know. Yeah, but I... I yeah. Yeah. Space, space pillows. pillows. Yeah. Yeah.
2: I, I can't remember, though, if we started the episode with that or not, but, but this, uh, boom, they just start with the with the drama right there. And, and, and I, I will say, though, that for a guy with a great sense of humor like Worf, which is questionable, mm-hmm. he also does not have a sense of humor, which is very unlike Dax. She, I mean, look, she calls it. Uh, it's going to make things very interesting. They've got a long long road ahead. Yeah,
1: you know, opposites attract. I get that. You know, that's a that's a time-honored hmm. romantic notion and trope. Sometimes I'm really struggling with what she sees in Worf, but that's up to Dax. But I do love yeah. that yeah. there's a—and Terry plays this off so well when Worf says, and there's one more thing, and she's like, please, not about the wedding. Yeah. And when he says it's about the wedding, her head just slumps. Like, <laughs> oh, my God, please, no. And— I think a lot of us out there were pretty much feeling the same thing. We're like, "Come on, man! Really, another yeah. another wedding yeah. thing that you're not going to be happy with unless you do something exactly what I tell you to."
2: Yep. Yeah. So good so good um some other fun stuff because we really leave a lot of that crew behind after the uh first few moments of the episode will be a little bit of Bashir and O'Brien and I do appreciate O'Brien talking about looking forward to getting Starfleet field rations again like freeze-dried peaches uh, which actually they're Mm -hmm. good Uh, I I like them you know powdered carrots which sounds terrible I do feel like there's probably a replicator on board that Starbase, so he won't be eating that for very long, I don't think. And it was funny to hear the call out to the singing, because, you know, they used the singing to great effect Mm -hmm. before in DS9 on the Ritaran. But here it's kind of funny, like, you can just imagine that this is something that happens several times a day, and they're just like, okay, all right. What exactly is a powdered carrot? I, I don't no. want to know. So,
1: it, was like, it was like carrot yeah. spice or something? I don't know. I, you know, yeah. those, two, those two at the beginning, because of the way they were seated, they kind of reminded me of like Statler and Waldorf from the Muppets. Just Oh, sure. Like, hey, yeah. look at those Klingons. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, those two guys. <laughs> yes. My favorite line yeah. in this episode came very early, and that's when Martok said, I would give my good eye. For a plate of fresh gack, Oh my God, JG kills that line. So funny.
2: He's look. We we might get, get be uh, giving it away. He's got all the good lines in this episode, uh but he delivers that perfectly. And I love. See, I, I love that the writers here sense the opportunity for a well placed joke like that. They're like, Well, he does only have one <laughs> eye. <laughs> let's let's make use of this. Mm-hmm. You know, so good. Um, and, well, and, and speaking of Martok, I mean, in his good lines, when a father and son do not speak, it means there is trouble between them. So obvious. But there's Martok basically just summing up everything about Worf and Alexander. See also Sarek and everybody else. <laughs> uh, but yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, I was like, uh, yeah. <laughs>
1: like, yeah, of course. Right. <laughs> Uh, yeah yeah <laughs> and and we're not yeah. really like totally surprised that martok has never heard of alexander i mean he did say to Worf, we've shed blood together we escaped from a prison together we've drank together we've done everything together and you've never told me about your son
2: hey I, he even knows that Worf had a brother uh who they just made disappear yeah. so this is like a thing that I happens so. i guess so yeah um, yeah
1: As you can Mm -hmm. tell, folks, the the steam is ramping up just a little bit. (laughs) The news cycle must be slow on Deep Space Nine because Jake is trying to find any way to keep himself occupied, looking for a job in the Resistance.
2: You know, it's interesting. That scene, I thought, needed to have a little bit different element to it. I I can understand Odo and Kira's reticence for a number Mm -hmm. of reasons. He's the kid. He is their former commander's son. He is a journalist, so that makes him vulnerable. There are many reasons to be reticent there. What I was surprised we didn't get out of Jake is a little more earnestness just because he is fully aware of the political situation and and is probably building up some resentment and anger about it. His father has been taken away from him. This... He should absolutely want to be there. It seemed like that moment was played a little bit, almost like a kid looking for adventure, or the kid reporter looking for a yeah. story. Um, I, I feel like there was another element that could have well, been there like,
1: too. So you have you have Odo and Kira. You know they're meeting clandestinely. You know in Quarks, and all of a sudden he's like, "Hey guys, can I join the resistance? Shut up! I mean, I mean, I mean, I mean. <laughs> I know. Join the resistance." <laughs>
2: right <laughs> yes yes yeah they, they need to work on their code words yes. early like do that now yeah uh yeah um all right so it, it is my thing to bring up food and i gotta mention it here we know what a barrel of blood wine looks like we know that for sure and we know what a plate full of gach looks like and here we got the lung of some animal uh but did you notice there was this shot when, when they cut to the wide shot of that table in the mess hall, at the end of that Klingon table, I swear it looked like a biscuit and some chicken and maybe some mac and cheese or potato salad. I'm thinking that somebody <laughs> on the crew, just they had lunch and they forgot to clean up on set, and then that ended up in the shot. And They're just like, well, we already shot it, so we got to keep oh, it and there. Somebody
1: there says, because, well, you know, why worry about it? It's never going to be in an HD anyway. Oh, too soon? <laughs>
2: Uh, but that looked good whatever's on that plate looked good so you know catering on ds9 on set (laughs) doing great yeah so there's that
1: bit where where kira's supposed to meet to and then quark says you should change your uniform and then she finally gets there and she's wearing her uniform and then damar says you're out of uniform what's that all about
2: right yeah, I mean, it seemed like they were expecting dress uniform, like when you're greeting a dignitary. But that's, yeah, I mean, she's in uniform, the uniform we always. Yeah. Well, see.
1: I mean, I would. It would make sense you know. if Demar says no, she's out of proper, you know, dress attire or something.
2: Yeah, right, right, but right. But she, right. it's not like she yeah. was wearing
1: pajamas. You know, she was wearing, <laughs> she was wearing her uniform. So.
2: Yeah. Exactly, exactly, yeah. Oh, and uh, Norman, you must have been pleased to see the return thematically of root beer. Yes. And, and this time with the addition of ice cream, which I also happen to like but very much, too. But such disdain. <laughs> I know. But it, I, I do like, that's one of those, I mean, not so subtle, but it was one of those things that says a lot without having to get greatly into description. You know, that's
1: fair because... Yeah. If for anything, it's probably the most economical way to describe the Federation, and even furthering how soft the Federation, the the Klingons believe they've become, like soft, sweet, yeah, you know, saccharine, you know, uh, cloying, yeah. And it's a right. nice touchstone from right. ever since we, we uh, since ever since we were introduced to root beer. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, I love the scene. It's probably my favorite scene, you know, with Alexander. It's just, you, there was so mm. much venom and resentment behind his eyes when he and Worf met for the first mm. time. Like, he just didn't know where to place all that anger. Yeah. And everything that Worf said. He's like, yeah. you know what? I just, I hate you.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And and maintains that well in the episode. I, I think Mark does a nice job here. And, then, okay, that confrontation that he has with uh, Chitarg, the follow-up to that is interesting with, between uh, Martok and Worf. Chatarg might have cut him a little and broken a few bones. <laughs> and I thought, well, it's a good thing they're Klingons. They're used to this. They're strong. They're stronger than humans. Um, and also a good thing that they have 24th century medical technology. Yeah. Ah, just broken a few bones, you know. For a human, any other time in history, broken a few bones that takes you out of battle. That takes you out of your job for at least a couple of weeks, uh, depending on the severity and the location. Many, many weeks. So, uh, yeah.
1: Well, you know that whole scene where where Alexander, you know, confronts Chatark and you know he's just getting him, you know, what for. It felt a yeah. lot like HBO's Band of Brothers in this episode called Replacements because you oh. the, the veterans of the ship, or at least the veterans in Band of Brothers, they were really hard on the replacements that came in after Normandy. Like, you weren't there. Yeah. You didn't jump with us. You don't know how hard it was. And they're right. But yeah. that's not the point of this. The point yeah. is that I'm here now. I'm here to serve with you now. We're supposed to bond now because I could be saving you or you could be saving me. Let's put all that aside. And I think that that's what they were getting at. And then all of a sudden, he's trying to, Alexander's trying to make his stand and make his name. And then, Dad, you ruined my knife. Uh, And now the rest of the crew is going to hate me. Thanks,
2: Dad. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Ain't that, that, that's a universal right there. yeah. Yeah. Now, I'm glad that you brought up Band of Brothers and, and drew a war parallel there because that's something that I think this episode, and honestly, a lot of the episodes that we've gotten so far, not just in the Dominion arc, but as they use uh, the Cardassians for you know stand-ins for Nazis or other fascist regimes, uh, they do pull a lot from historic moments. And it may not be specifics, but thematically historic moments. And there was one that... Uh, I notice here that really stood out to me, and and that's just the the scene with the dress, you know, uh, with Ducat manipulating Kira. I, I know that there have been moments in history and in film when uh, they'll depict something like uh, whoever the the Nazi or the stand-in bad guy is using. What they've plundered to manipulate somebody that it is not out of the, the question of historic realism, but it's also something that's been used in entertainment tropes as well. And interestingly, the one that I thought of maybe because it's one that I've watched more recently is in the movie to be or not to be. It's a comedy. You can watch either one. You can watch the Jack Benny version from the 40s, or you can watch the Mel Brooks version from 1983. Uh, but they do the same thing. The Nazis have taken everything away from the polls, but then use their access to resources to manipulate and bribe the people around them, like Professor Soletsky bribing Anna Bronsky with a dress. Uh, so that stood out to me as being exactly something that is... Uh, uh, historic parallel. Oh, uh, by the way, uh, as we were talking about people sort of uh, getting hurt and uh, beat up and cut <laughs> <laughs> and then bones broken, etc., um, I do have to say that whenever in a movie or a TV show there's some kind of a blood ritual uh, of characters drawing their own blood with a knife, first of all, it hurts. Yeah. Uh, second of all, well, we can say that they have super quick healing remedies in the future. In the twenty fourth century, you just you get a, a hypo spray or a you know dermal regenerator, and you're fine. And in that case, why do it anyway? Why do the fun ritual anyway? I mean, seriously, if like two seconds later, psh, here you go, you're fine. But imagine every time you did this, now you got people walking around with bandages, a sore hand, maybe a sensitive spot on their palms, so they're not very good at their stations anymore. It's just, they're no good for getting back I heard to this work. This is why
1: they outlawed high fighting on Klingon ships. Yeah. That
2: makes sense. That makes perfect sense. Well, I mean, now.
1: think about it this yeah. way. I mean, I thought that. Like, doing something like that, a blood ritual, cutting your palm open, I thought it was an interesting touchstone. But think about how many times we've seen them do this in Star Trek. (laughs) They would have ridiculous amounts of scar tissue. I don't think that the Klingons would be like, yeah, uh, here, here's my knife. Hand me a towel and a dermal generator. So... Or generator so that I can take care of this so it doesn't leave a scar. This won't scar. Let's, I just cut through my glove. Oh my god, I just got these. Uh, right. You know, the tar the targs <laughs> the targhide was so supple and I just ruined them.
2: Targhide, that's right. Wait, 100% uh, I think we have targhide. our new band named
1: Supple Targ Hide.
2: Supple Targ Hide. Love it. Yes. Yes. We were talking about uh Martok, again having great lines in here and in his confrontation with Alexander. He asks Alexander, why are you here? Alexander says, to serve the Empire. Martok's comeback, so amazing. That is a slogan, not an answer. Again, this is why I love Martok. This is why I absolutely love him.
1: Mm -hmm. What a breath of fresh air he was in that scene.
2: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, uh, oh, by the way, from a production note here, you know that I love good special effects, and I very often will praise a show for good effects, especially on a TV budget where it's very challenging. The shot of the Rotaran slowing down and letting the Jemhadar pass was. Not good, in my opinion, in my humble podcaster opinion. Feel free to disagree with me if you like. I would much rather have something else happen. Don't know what that is, but given time, we could figure that out. Or honestly, just let it be an off-screen moment. The action is on the bridge. The action is in the drama of the characters. Spelling out the moment with that effect, I thought, not only didn't serve the story, it really brought that moment to a screeching halt, literally and figuratively. I know they had to get some action in the episode, but that was not the way to do it. Well,
1: it's from my understanding that General Martok is a fan of 20th century war footage, and I I do believe that he put Mm. in a hollow suite program called Top Gun, and
0: oh, he was he was studying the okay. exploits
1: of one famous aviator and top gun uh, instructor at one point in time Pete Maverick Mitchell he had a really interesting maneuver where he he told his rio goose at the time to yeah. hit the brakes and let their enemies fly right by I, I think that's a brilliant way of being able to study what came from and being able to use that in actual wartime footage um and lastly oh i'm oh, sorry
2: but but norman i i have one mm. question What of Goose? What of Goose? I think
1: I'm going to cut my palm and drip some blood (laughs) into a bowl with his dog tags and uh, honor him that way. Um, Okay. And one last thing I wanted to say. I will teach you what you need to know to be a warrior, and you will teach me what I need to know to be a father. Um, It doesn't really work that way, but maybe points for trying?
0: (laughs) Am I the only one who thinks that an opportunity was missed here to do the opening credits in the style of the Brady Bunch?
2: You know, Norman, and everybody in the sound of my voice, um, I feel like I am always looking at a screen, I'm in front of the computer, I'm on the tablet, I'm on the phone, um, Really more so than I have ever been in my life. And whether you're like me, you know, an avid news watcher or you're just in serious need of a distraction, unplugging is a great way to go. And it's easier said than done. But one of my favorite ways to rest my eyes and still get content because I want to be connected to news and podcasts and entertainment, um, I put in my Raycon earbuds. And I listen to my ever-growing list of podcasts and news programming when I go out for a walk or do dishes or do something active, do something out, and take my eyes away from a screen for a moment.
1: I couldn't agree with you more, John. One of the things that's uh, new in the way that people are living nowadays is that they want to be connected and they want to be mobile because you can't just stay on the couch connected to something all the time. You want to walk around your home? because pretty much that's all we're doing is walking around our home or our apartment or our dwelling. But it doesn't mean that you have to do it with low audio quality. So whether you're catching up on your favorite news podcast or binging an audio book or even powering through your workout with a pumped-up playlist because you want that kind of quality sound with your audio, especially when you're working out. A pair of Raycons in your ears can make all the difference. I love my Raycons because they have great top-level top sound quality when it comes to uh, voice clarity because I, I listen to a lot. Of audiobooks and a lot of podcasts especially my own <laughs> <laughs> so no dangling wires or stems to get in your way raycons come in a range of stylish colors but always with a comfortable in-ear fit for a more discreet look raycons are built to perform anywhere and anytime with water and sweat resistant construction and bluetooth that pairs quickly and seamlessly
2: and, and here's something that shocks me almost every time um the, the battery life uh six hours of playtime on these tiny, tiny little earbuds that really are discreet and small and sleek. You can just unplug for a while, take that longer walk, go away, go, you know, get out and uh, listen to something fun while you do it. Um, that little case that they come in keeps them recharged so you can keep listening over and over again. The best part, Raycon makes great sound accessible to everyone with wireless earbuds starting at half the price of other premium audio brands for real. And now Raycon is offering 15%
1: off all their products for our listeners and here is what you've got to do to get it. Go to buyraycon.com/missionlog. That's it. You'll get 15% off your entire Raycon order. So feel free to grab a pair and a spare. That's 15% off at buyraycon.com slash mission log.
2: Buyraycon.com slash mission log. Norman, I can't miss words. Martok is the man. Yep. <laughs> Martok really is. I, I think about this journey that we've been on with Worf since next gen, and it's been very interesting that Worf is the Klingon who is trying desperately to be Klingon. And he's constantly in his head about what that means and how he is perceived as being Klingon. A guy like Martok comes along and he just is in every good sense of what it means to be a Klingon. Now, I will say that the more we see of a guy like Martok, I, I keep thinking that most of the Klingon Empire is like preschool where you've got a handful of adults in charge... And the rest of it is just chaos from people who cannot take care of themselves. <laughs> you know, they're stabbing each other, they're beating each other up, they're fighting in the mess hall. They, and it takes at least you've got the adult in the room here, a guy like Martok, and we've seen some other very interesting Klingon generals and Klingon leaders in the past. Um, I, I think you know Gorkon in uh, Star Trek VI was fantastic, but you know there are a lot of others who just would have soon jump into the fight instead of leading their soldiers and doing so in an honorable way. And that's what Martok brings here, is a sense of honor that is genuine and is earned. And I tell you what, that scene of Martok confronting Alexander about what he really wants, to me, that's the best scene in the episode. And it's one of the best scenes written for Martok So far, I think, hands down. We got a lot of great stuff when we got, well, reintroduced to the real Martok back in that uh, asteroid prison run by the Jem'Hadar. He was immediately likable. Even when we got him on DS9, he showed humility. He also showed compassion. But he showed leadership. And he he showed that earned trust that he has among his men. Even when he wasn't at the top of his game, he figured out how to get it back. And I, you know, I, I maybe this episode is just going to turn into praising Martok. I don't think so. I think we have other things to talk about too, <laughs> but I will, but I will leave that there. You know, what's an interesting thing is that in Deep Space Nine, we've seen
1: these, uh, these generations of families. You know, in one of the episodes that we've talked earlier about, we saw Joseph Sisko talking to Benjamin Sisko about Jake. Three generations of Ciscos. In a sense, what you're describing here is, and I guess I can use this now, three generations of the House of Martok, mm. or at least two generations of the House of Moog, mm-hmm. or one generation of the House of Rajenko. Either way you put it, it's Martok being the the wise perspective, and then Worf being the one who needs a little bit of that temperament. Yeah, And then in doing so, and being tempered by Martok, that wisdom gets passed down twofold to Alexander, who would benefit from both Worf's and Martok's wisdom. Right. Right. The thing is, is that it's not getting past Worf. No. So Martok has to directly intervene and look at it from a perspective of a Klingon general who needs good people, but also from the point of someone who now is the caretaker of this family, Worf and Alexander, and how he's going to move them forward It seems that at the beginning, something so obvious that he said when he said, you know, when the fathers and sons don't speak, there's usually trouble. Yes, that's pretty obvious. Yeah. Yeah. But I think he's almost saying that from a point of truth, a point of uh, his own understanding, something personal to him. I don't know if he Mm. has sons of his own Mm -hmm. or if he's lost sons or this is how he and his sons or daughters, I don't know, I don't know too much about his family, were at one point in time.
2: But look at how Worf answers that. Alexander and I were never close. Well, look, here we go. In addition to all the problems that we can lay at uh, Worf's feet... Now we get to use gaslighting in there as well. And I just feel like Worf is doing this to everyone around him all the time when it comes to his family situation. And as weird as his relationship is with Dax, and, and I look, I'm going to use weird lovingly here because I, there are many aspects that I do like about them together. Uh, Dax has this freedom of person that Worf does not. But what what we end up with is that Alexander is just full of resentment because how could he not be? And uh, because Worf has not exactly extended the olive branch at any point, not only that, he has committed the lie of omission by not even mentioning him to anybody that he's close to. Close enough to be a son now, part of the family of the house of Martok. And not even mention that this is the rest of my family. That that's a really like it's easy to make light of it and say, well, it, it's just uh, this is a matter of dramatic convenience here. But there's something really disturbing about this that those characters would be as close as they are. Worf, uh, Worf, and uh, Martok, and that Worf by our uh, by our putting the pieces together here. Uh, has just never even mentioned that he's got a son.
1: Or was married previously. Or was
2: married, yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
1: I think the issue is with Worf, and it's not that I'm defending him, because I do have my issues with Worf. Mm-hmm. But the issue with this particular dynamic is you can't have Worf serve his capacity on this ship both ways. You can't have him as the first officer of the ship who has to... Enforce the duties to make the ship run smoothly in a wartime situation and also be Alexander's father at the same time, trying to make amends with a son who has been estranged uh, to him for five years and not even in the best of terms before that. So can you can you actually or realistically have a path forward with these two? In my opinion, war should have stepped aside or Martok should have put him aside and let somebody else deal with the soldiers. Yep. Let Worf be his father. Let somebody else be his, his sergeant at arms. And maybe that's why Chatarg, I think, was such a really interesting character here. Because almost every other person on that ship, aside from Worf, was better at advising Alexander how to be a Klingon warrior than his own father. Chatarg was ruthless with him. Yeah. But in that sense, to make him a better soldier. Like, like Mark Tok said... Chitaurk might have cut him a little and maybe broken a few bones, <laughs> but nothing more. That's it. He wants to. He wants to raz him. He wants to raz the FNG.
2: Well, well that's why you need that scene after Alexander has screwed up with the bridge simulation. That's why you need to have that scene where Chitarg comes over and there's a little bit of like friendly amusement, friendly humiliation, because otherwise he's completely irredeemable. He's just the bully in the mess hall. But now Mm -hmm. by introducing a scene like that, you go, okay, here's somebody who at least wants his other crew members to be good at their jobs and can at least see, okay, there isn't. A 100% downside to this. There is something that can be taken out of this. This is a learning moment for this kid. And yeah, a lot of this could have been resolved if you had simply taken Alexander and put him under the tutelage of a guy like Shatarg. As rough as it may have been, they probably would have still gotten into a fight, but that's okay. Uh, given what their relationship is going to be anyway, given the traditions of of you know the Klingon military anyway, but by forcing Worf into that corner, I, I agree with you. We got to cut him some slack there. If that's mm-hmm. the only place we cut him slack, yeah. yeah. Well, again, that was
1: you know as soon as Worf gets, you know, gains a little bit of ground, he kind of takes two steps back when he broke up the fight between Alexander and Jatark, because right then and there. That's where soldiers bond. They have to find that mm-hmm. way to be able to. And that's, I think, where, where Alexander maybe even, like, gained some ground, some respect from Chitark because he did slice him. Yeah. And he's like, ooh, this kid's got some moxie. I kind of dig this, you know? Right. I'm not going to take it easy on him until dad shows up. And then I have to because management has just basically inserted its big management foot over labor. And now everyone's <laughs> got to get back to work. Yeah. Right. Right. And management dad, which is like the worst combination ever.
2: Yeah. Oh, not right? good. Not good. No. Nope. Yeah. It, it, especially when he says, hey, don't bully my son. Okay. Watch. Everybody knows that exactly. That, that it, you're setting everybody up for failure here, especially the kid who's getting bullied. It's like high school inside of a bird of prey. It is. Oh, it's, it's like the worst. <laughs> and that's why I go back to my opening statement here, that, that Martok is the one adult in the room a, in a ship that would otherwise just run itself into the ground, the the Klingon Empire has got to have at least a few functioning adults to bring it all together. Otherwise, they would never get anything done.
1: Well, I'd like to shift the tone a little bit of from, from Alexander and Worf to, well, I mean, not just totally shift because... I find these two stories to be somewhat parallel to each other. And uh, I call this the 24th century version of the parent trap. Mm. So you Mm -hmm. have the A and B story, I think, line up a little bit here where we see the children of these stories, Alexander and Zial respectively, being gaslighted by their parents or parental figures in order for these parents or parental figures, quote unquote, for their desires to be met. Right. So let's talk about Dukat and Zial. So Dukat basically uses Zial... As bait, as currency, as a way to be able to insert his his authority, not just over his own daughter, but in many ways over Kira. Yeah. He's always trying to find some new angle to influence Kira for whatever psychotic reason that he has. Right. And it worked up to a point in this episode because... She almost wore that dress and bought into his charm and he's so slippery about it it's just a it's just amazing to watch Mark Alaimo do that but he wouldn't have been able to do that without Zial. Yeah, uh, he and, wouldn't have been able to do that.
2: And that's the insidious nature of it: is that Kira genuinely cares for Zial. They did such a great job of establishing that relationship from early on, and uh, putting Zial under Kira's care. Even though we haven't seen a lot of it, uh, that that's actually a success. In DS9, where all those parts for us, the viewers, actually line up and go together very nicely, it's very believable what Kira's emotional investment is in all of this, which makes it even more disgusting the way that Ducata's is simply using them to his own ends. Mm-hmm.
1: And he almost did. And I was surprised that. That Kira actually fell for it a little bit because earlier on in this episode, we were seeing Kira and and Odo try and create a little bit more momentum for the resistance. And, you know, she made her declaration in the previous episode that she is going to be a fighter now, that she's going to drop all of this apologism for for the new masters of Terok Noor. Yeah. And then all of a sudden she's like almost, she's inches away from becoming that person again. Yeah. Because of Zial, that's, that's how Ducat understands how much power this girl has over Kira, because I think in some way, Kira still harbors some type of maternal protectivism of this girl. I don't know why. I mean, she only really knows her from the rescue, but she feels like this was her chance to be able to do something good for the children of that war, for the children of the occupation, and she feels responsible in an almost blinded way, blindsided way that allows Descartes to be able to maneuver just enough to be able to try and sway her over to his side. And that is exactly why something like uh, this dynamic of using the children as currency is so dangerous. It's so um, uh, Machiavellian and so maniacal in, in, in that same sense. Yeah. Um, but conversely, though, <laughs> and in a completely different way, <laughs> Warf and Alexander, so there. have you and let me put this, this, I want to put this very sensitively because okay. I don't want the emails, but when you really take a look at Worf's motivations in almost every one of his focus episodes, everything that anyone else brings to any type of relative, uh, consequence always ends up being about him. Mm. It's never about mm-hmm. the other person. It's always yeah. about him. So, I think that's just because Worf is just far too insecure yeah. as a character that he projects that insecurity onto everyone in his life. Take, for instance, Jadzia and the wedding. His insecurities about the wedding end up being her problems. Right. Right. His insecurities about honor, about being embarrassed by his own family, by his son. Right. That all gets projected onto Alexander. So everything he pretty much loathes about himself ends up being somebody else's problem, a problem that he basically just heaps onto somebody that he cares about.
2: You know, I I want to be Well, part of me wants to be generous here and think, wow, Worf is this tragic character. He he's the man without a country, the man without a home. But he's been given every opportunity to be better than he is about that, surrounded by people who care about him as a person and the skills that he brings to the table. And yet, as you just pointed out, this insecurity is so overwhelming that it forces the attention back on him in the most unproductive way possible. There's nothing redeeming here about him actually putting Alexander first or putting Dax first in the scenes that we've gotten.
1: And I think that the more that I talk about this out loud, I didn't really consider it this way. But if we are to be generous about our criticisms, Worf really is tragic in that sense. And I think that I'm starting to feel a little bit more pity about him as a character because mm. he just doesn't know how to move out of his own way, how to move forward. Maybe that's where Martok is stepping in. Maybe that's where we get to see like how like uh, a character like Martok, his wisdom and temperament and his own real true paternal ability allows Worf to be just a little bit better. Mm. Uh, to, to assuage a little bit of those insecurities and to move forward a little bit more nobly in his life and, and less selfishly. But you really have to think about, as an overall character, he is one that is can be pitied without being uh, you know, being ironic about it. He does sure. have a lot of issues that he has to work through. Yeah.
2: I will just make one more point here before we wrap up this segment, because a lot of our attention has been on Worth specifically, or Alexander specifically, Dukat, Kira, of course, y'all, where it's merited. Has anybody thought about the Rajinkos in all of this? Um, because... Uh, uh, that's exactly the kind of thing that I mean when I say that Worf has learned nothing. The Rajinkos are good people. And when we met them way back in Next Gen in the episode Family, part of Worf's opportunity for growth was showing them respect and accepting them and at least mentally making himself a whole person again with reconciling his warrior side, his Klingon background, and the fact that these kind, loving people not only brought him up, but gave him the tools that he needed to go be the person that he is. And here we are, years later, and I actually feel bad for these kind people, the Rajinkos, who took him in, and his brother, and his son, and what do they get in return? Nothing. They they get Worf, who is so quick to completely dismiss them. Send his son to them, but then not talk to either them or his son. Um, I my pity is now being redirected at them, and and not at Worf. Worf is being monstrous here.
0: I am beginning to think that this episode might not have been about fun family hijinks after all. Let's see what Norman and John think.
1: So we are at the end here of Sons and Daughters, and hopefully that we've been able to gain some wisdom about, I don't know, how to treat sons or how to treat daughters, but we'll find that out in a little bit. But first, let's see how we do with our observations, morals, meanings, and messages. And if this episode holds up and stands the test of time, and let's start with you, John. Let's start with, does this episode hold up for you, and how do you
2: feel about it? <laughs> it depends on how you look at the episode.
0: Is that a loaded it, question? It was, and I know
2: it, it is the mission log question. but you know, This is a good episode. That frustrates me immensely because, taken completely out of context, you could go, "Oh, okay. Look, you have an A and a B story that have similar themes, similar dynamics, an examination of you know tragic and difficult sides of some relationships, and uh, that that's noteworthy. It's valid. It's worth exploring in a show." And I like the idea of exploring, again, the personal side of what is happening during this war. Because otherwise, if it was just 10 episodes of nothing but war, 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 it wouldn't matter. It would just be so many spaceships on screen. Here we actually get to see what are the interpersonal dynamics that are happening with that war as a background. This is an episode that reveals even more of Worf's shortcomings in a very acute way. And it also, the, the thing that I like here is that it reveals that Martok at this point, I'm going to say, is the one true Klingon who who actually embodies the value of honor that we keep hearing so much about. He, he is, I said last, he is that guy. Um, it is a well-attempted episode to slow us down again, like I said, from that war story, dive into the personal side. We need that from time to time. We needed to catch up on Alexander, but is all of this too little too late? Is Worf supposed to come across as, in any sense of the word, some kind of a good guy here? And also, I'm really left feeling curious about what will happen with Zial and Kira, but I'm not curious at all what will become of Alexander. That, that That's just, you know, a problem with what we've been given of Alexander so far and what we've been given of Worf so far and how well or how poorly they have built that relationship up. So if this was an attempt to redeem the Alexander storyline, we haven't gotten there yet. Will we at some point in the future? Maybe. I I don't know. But I do know that there was an attempt here to address a major oversight, and I feel like it just wasn't done well. And I'm going to circle back to it when we get to our morals, meanings, messages, because I feel like that truly is the the biggest fault of the episode. It's like they sat down and said, you know what? We haven't addressed this character in a while. We need to do that. It's a loose end. But then they stopped there and didn't really think through, who are we going to redeem here? How are we going to redeem them? As opposed to just more of the same where we come away from it going, wow, Worf still really has some problems. Again, I at the end of the last segment, I wasn't trying to be too flippant about it at all. Like, seriously. We've been through family arcs with Worf before. We've been through supposed learning moments with Worf before. And it seems like now those are so far distant that he, and along with us, have just forgotten about them. And I'm saying that as the embodiment of his relationship with the Rojankos. But we'll come back to all of this in the morals, meanings, messages. But uh, for you, Norman, as far as this episode holding up, what do you think? So I'm going
1: to set aside... The obvious here, the production value, the visual effects, the quality of the production. You know, it's, it's the sixth season of this franchise, and, and many, if not all, the episodes at this point will be more than above average. Sure. That's where we are. They know what they're doing. They're hitting their stride. But at the same time, though, I have to be honest with our listeners. So for me, does this episode hold hold up? And it's it's a no mm-hmm. for me. It's a no for me. And I want to do this as, as critical as I possibly can, you know, with why it doesn't. And it's because... The repercussions of Worf's past sins are forgiven way too quickly, way too easily. In an episode where I think they introduced something interesting, this emotional struggle with Alexander and his estranged father, and then they wrap it up with this kind of traditional Star Trek Next Generation 20-second emotional tidiness of an ending— and I always felt like, um, to your point, it's just a way to shoehorn in kind of like the Alexander storyline, this, this forgiveness episode that gives a little bit more credence or a little bit more runway to where Worf is going to head into the future. It's just a serviceable storyline point. Right. But when you bring something as, as potentially cathartic as a father and a son battling each other about their past, about their culture, trying to find an inch that they can establish in each other's lives again. It just didn't work. And it was all, it all on paper should have, but it didn't. And I agree the Kira and Dukat and Zial storyline, it far outstripped, far outstripped where Worf and Alexander was at the end. And in the end, you know, when you really think about it, Worf got what he wanted. He gets, he always gets what he wants. Yeah. You know, and Without any real kind of stain on his honor, without any real damage to his feelings or his own personal needs, everyone else pushes aside what they want in order to accommodate what Worf wants. Dax has to do it with a wedding. Alexander has to do it, you know, with his choice to join the Klingon Defense Force. And I just can't get really behind this narrative that they just want to push all of these other characters' storylines to the side— When if you really wanted to, you could have just, you know, they could have bared down on the core of the story. And that is this struggle between, you know, a son and his father trying to reconnect with each other. It's too clean for me. It's just too clean. And Worf is too duty bound to commit what he is being asked to become a father again and, and try and repair that damage. It probably would have been better if they didn't wrap up anything at the end with bringing Alexander into the house of Martok and just let him go on his way. Perhaps Worf in episodes later will hear about his son's death and maybe he will find some type of, some type of, uh, you know, regret, if any, about that. But that's where I would like to have gone.
2: So I, I think you're right. If we had seen growth out of Worf, if we had seen some sort of positive influence from Worf on Alexander, it would have been getting him to be the person that Alexander should be. And that's the tragedy here. That is the tragic loss here. Is that This is still dysfunctional, even when you do a blood ritual, even when you welcome somebody into the house of Martok. It's still a dysfunctional relationship. So that brings me to morals, meanings, messages. Um, look, the, the Zial story, fascinating she is manipulated and gaslit by her father full stop that's what's happening there and she is making excuses for his abusive behavior and it is incredibly sad to see it for her sake and for kira's kira is the witness to all of this and um we we simply have to see how that will play out not really a a message there necessarily but that that is the emotional and dramatic reality of what's happening in that plot line. Now, with the A-plot, with Alexander and Worf, any messages here? I I don't know if they are what the writers or producers intended, if they intended a specific message from any of this or or a uh, takeaway to illuminate that relationship between Worf and Alexander. I think... The intention was to show at the end, in that last scene, that even a strained parent and child relation can find some common ground. But do, do we really get that or deserve that at the end? And and for the Worf Alexander story, I just... I have to say that we don't. You know, if there is anybody in the last 10 years of Star Trek, from the time that this episode came out, the, and the prior 10 years who should understand that you can't live up to someone else's expectations, that you have to be given the opportunity to find and be true to yourself, then it's Worf. (laughs) He absolutely should have embraced and embodied that idea. Worf may have abandoned his own parents, but he had parental figures, especially in the guise of someone like, oh, I don't know, Captain Jean-Luc Picard, Did he learn nothing from his time on the Enterprise? Full seven years there that we saw. The one in this story who acts like a father is Martok. Martok all the way as an example of a Klingon who doesn't just shout about honor, but actually lives it. Uh, While Worf is so concerned about the letter of the law, it's Martok alone who seems to actually get the spirit of it. I'm not happy with the resolution here, not because it needed to have a happy ending, but I feel like the resolution here isn't true to the characters and it isn't true to what the characters need. Alexander is here for all the wrong reasons. He's not cut out to be a warrior and everybody knows it. Worf needs to or needed to instill in him the confidence to be something else, to be true to himself and take that journey the way that Worf has been afforded the luxury of taking this journey for most of his life. And Alexander needs that confidence to be exactly that, not what he thinks will make his father happy. That is a tragic through line for the Alexander character here.
1: Wow, John, that was that was wonderful, <laughs> actually.
2: I was engrossed with every
1: word. and I'm doing this show with you <laughs> I, I told you like
2: one day we're going to do a convention and you're just going to get me on stage with a, a spotlight and a glass of a brown drink of some sort and say here's mm-hmm. john talking about what's wrong with wharf and alexander <laughs> but i would love to hear what you think uh no oh, show <laughs> i gotta know
1: well you know I mean, I agree with a, a lot of what you said, and, and even my own thoughts, since we don't really uh, compare our notes before we get into this, uh, they're going to be somewhat similar. But I want to take it from the standpoint of of a word that I think is, is at the center of a lot of my issue with the storytelling with the Klingons. And to paraphrase, say, the scene with Iniega Montoya from The Princess Bride, if he's talking to Worf, Honor, you keep using that word. I do not think it means what you think it means. yes.
2: Yes. And yeah.
1: that's that's where I really have uh, a lot of my issue with with the Klingon storyline comes from and, and Worf's storyline. Now, I don't mean to disparage Worf or, or Worf's fans or the Klingons or the Klingon culture. That's not what my segment here is for when I'm talking about this story, this episode. But I have to be honest, and I just don't understand the Klingon culture, truly. I truly do not understand the Klingon culture, and I think it has to do with their quote-unquote abuse of the word honor. I clearly understand that honor is the cornerstone of the Klingon culture, yet I see very little truth of that in our main Klingon protagonist in this series, and that's Worf. All I ever really get from Worf is how those he loves are the ones he critiques the most or is the hardest on because of how they will make him look, how their behavior will in some way tarnish his honor. And I mentioned before, have you noticed how many times Worf makes almost every personal situation that he's in about himself? What he wants, how his needs must be fulfilled, how his honor must be satisfied. How many times have we seen him come close to finding a way to meet somewhere in the middle with Dax, or in this episode with Alexander, even Martok? Case in point, when he and Alexander went in chambers together, Worf said, did you think an enlisting would please me? Would please yeah. me? And Alexander says, pleasing you did not enter my decisions. And Worf just gaslights him saying that, stop pretending to be a warrior. We both know that you do not belong here. <sighs> not only is Worf saying that your choice doesn't please me, But it also has nothing to do with any semblance of reality that I believe you should believe. That, to me, was like, wow. Okay. Parent strike number one. Number two. Let's take a look at... Well, not parent strike number two. This is actually in the plus (laughs) side for the parent column. Now, by comparison, let's take a look at Martok, the way he uh, uses his words and his experience and his wisdom especially when disciplining Alexander in those moments. That, to me, is how a Klingon of rank and honor would behave. But honor, where in that word does one who is bound by the iron in that word, you know, that Klingon mm-hmm. iron in that word, have the luxury of abandoning one's own son? Because that's the least honorable thing you can do. Yeah. Yeah. That scene where Alexander said, you call yourself my father, but you haven't tried to see me or talk to me in five years. I wasn't the kind of son you wanted, so you pretended that you had no son. You never accepted me. You abandoned me. That line, when I was watching it, I felt like I was getting slapped across Mm -hmm. the face. It was performed so Mm -hmm. well because it was the shame that was coming out of Alexander's personality But it wasn't his shame. It was his father's shame for him, of him. And how does that resonate with someone who upholds honor? Uh, A code that is supposed to give a very specific direction and purpose, like doing the right thing, i.e. the honorable thing, like taking responsibility for your child.
2: The family drama is real. Also, Martok fan club, Norman Loud, John Champion charter members right now.
1: Mm -hmm. Established 2021.
2: (laughs) Mission Log is produced by Roddenberry Entertainment, executive producer Rod Roddenberry. Our website and your opportunity to comment and connect with us is missionlogpodcast.com. If you'd like to support Mission Log directly, you can do so at patreon.com slash missionlog. And for more Star Trek news and discussion, be sure to visit trekmovie.com. On the next Mission Log, Behind
1: the Lines.
0: some of the music for Mission Log provided by Warp 11, online at warp11.com. I hope the next episode gets back to the important question of how Chief O'Brien's pants are doing. The suspense is killing me.